if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Our next guest is Daniel Green, VP of Engineering at Xmode Social. Dan is an old friend of mine, friend of yours. Uh, we have a lot of stories. He's going to rant about microservices. He's also going to talk a lot about how you get engineering and the business to better understand each other and solve problems, including how to deal with some nasty technical debt. Dan is, is a unique combination of strategic and practical. And so there's some really great uh, real world experience to share uh, in the conversation coming up. So let's get into it. You know, our theme for today is, is transformation, turnaround, pivot, um, these types of uh, leading through change. What about the X-Mode social experience would you describe in that way? In that way? Well, the, the entire genesis of the company actually is, is a huge testament to, to pivoting for seeing new opportunities and new capabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original uh, company was an app named Drunk Mode. Uh, which was very popular on college campuses. It was a safety app disguised as a party app. So you would see, oh, this place is happening. Where was I last night? All of the things that college drunk things would do, but it would actually be used to help track to make sure that you got home safe and that people were, t- were taken care of. Hmm. Because of their the market they were in, there was a lot of interest in the location data of these, we'll say, 20 to 24-year-old college students. It's a high-value marketing segment. Mm. So people were reaching out to them and the experience was horrible. They weren't getting paid on time. Um, it was just a bad industry at, at the time. Um, so they saw a big opportunity. So they took their million to two million users and pivoted to become a how to do it right, how, how to do it ethically, how to do it at a high quality, and how to be, turn into a leader in the marketplace. Mm. Uh, and they've gone over the last two, two and a half years from being just this little scrappy app to being a, a significant player uh, in the location data space. And and this is not the first turnaround you've been a part of. No. Uh, through many years uh, in the past, uh, my time at Three Pillar, we had a number of clients where changing the way you look at a problem or how you want to solve the area can really be... Um, you have to keep your eyes open for, for these capabilities. Uh, one of our clients, they were in the micro-training space. They were trying to mm-hmm. cut down on the overhead of high overturn industries, uh, front-end employees, retail employees, these kind of places. And the CEO of that company went out into the market, and while it resonated, they really just wanted to make sure that all these employees were happy and delivering high customer service was mm-hmm. this message you kept on hearing in the marketplace. He pivoted his entire company to become a gamification of customer service for front-end employees. Mm-hmm. So if you are a and on the wait staff at a restaurant, you can get a higher score than somebody else at the same time, and you can gamify that whole process and reward it with extra time off or gift cards or other things. And seeing that change really uh, was eye-opening to me of what uh, it can mean to truly innovate within your your company, and pot- potentially even as far as reinvent your company. Hmm. What are the kind of common, you know, as people are into this, and I know you've done a lot, 
What are the kind of mistakes that people make when they're trying to do a transformation or a turnaround? Depending on the level that you're going for, one of the big mistakes I see is, I mean, it's a cliche, but boiling the ocean, that I want to change everything all at once. And typically that fails, to, to be blatantly honest. Um, a former client of mine, they were in a five-year re-innovation stage. At the end of year two, they had 8% done. And they ended up having to scrap the whole effort. And they also approached it wrong because they were holding all new requirements. They had this new idea. They wanted to transform to it. Everything else had to wait. Business doesn't work that way. Product doesn't work that way. We came in and we made one piece of it a little better. Uh, we took a process that was taking 40 to 45 minutes and we had it fully automated. So it was effectively less than a second because all the systems talked to each other. That revolutionized how they looked at all their problems that freed up time across the board, which let them do the next thing, which let them do the next. Every time mm -hmm. you can give a little space for more innovation, you'll get it. Trying to innovate everything is a fool's errand. So a lot of times we'll, you know, I mean, you, we'll run into somebody and they'll, they'll say, you know, my existing product, it's duct tape, spaghetti, nonsense, it's really old, doesn't run very fast. I have to rebuild everything. So you get that. You're talking to that person. Yes. What do you say next, usually? I had a conversation with this with a uh, friend of mine literally last week. <laughs> they have a 20-year-old software system that they are in horrible need to re-architect the entire thing. In talking with him and some of his team members, and this is really just something I did as a favor, find areas, I, I call them fault lines, within your product that you can take a piece of and repair that, make that one a little better. Find the next area. You don't have to break it down into a hundred little parts. Uh, I've rallied many, many times against uh, microservices being the answer to all. Microservices is breaking down all the stuff your product does into each, each thing is a tiny little software component that you then manage independently which sounds great, except when you realize now you're managing hundreds of little tiny pieces. Uh, and as a person who has a multiple buckets of Legos in his basement, managing tiny, tiny pieces is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, and not good to step on either, but that's a whole other debate. <laughs> well, let's go just a little bit sure. further. So commence rant on microservices. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know if we want to get into that far. There are some benefits of looking at things in microservices. A lot of it is that this piece is only about the thing it cares about. And, and I understand the benefits and the, and the isolationist value of that. But nothing exists in a vacuum. And if you, there's a great uh, image. Uh, if you Google Netflix microservice Death Star, it's a famous infographic that shows all the dependencies of all these to each other. And it is this big giant sphere of death. <laughs> and the belief that if I make everything microservices, all my dependencies go away is, is fake. Mm. It just externalizes them mm. and makes them so you're just as dependent on them as before. They're just in a different direction. Mm. So that's the beginnings of my rant. I, I worry about a can of worms, can <laughs> open worms everywhere scenario here. 
Uh, is there any other areas you want that you kind of want to dive into? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back up uh, <laughs> so we don't end up in a microservices uh, conversation. But but I, but I think I mean the the advice is is makes a lot of sense, right? That you should pick a part of the product, improve it, that you can get rearchitecture incrementally, which right. uh, which is often not clear how to go about doing that. But I'm also interested in the advice you give on on where you either look for the fault lines or how you prioritize where in the product to look for those opportunities to improve. Like, how do you, how would you advise someone to, to go about doing that? Most systems have areas that are working well and areas that are working poorly. Uh, and by working poorly, I mean it takes the team a huge amount of time to make even the smallest functional improvement to it. Uh, if your team is taking a week to add a button to a web page, there's something fundamentally wrong underlying. It's not that they're not working hard. It's not that they don't care. Is that the evolution of the system has incurred enough technical debt where it's actually getting in the way of product feature development. Mm. So if you can find areas of the system that are causing the most pain for your team, solving those is going to probably be the best for morale as well as allow you to innovate faster over time mm. because you're you're hitting the areas that are slowing you down the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If Reporting is working just fine, but you've found this really cool new reporting engine. Don't don't get caught up in that bait because that's mm -hmm. all it is. Mm -hmm. However, if your accounting finance aspect of your system, so you can bill clients, is not working right, or we, nobody wants to touch it, mm -hmm. then that's an area that you really need to touch because your system has to be maintainable. Your product has to be able to be innovated on over time mm -hmm. for you to be successful. Mm -hmm. And you're so, going to need that money as well. If it's supporting oh, invoicing, for yes, example, yes. Yeah, you're going to need paid that. Is, is, I've heard it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. That, a lot of times, what we, the tension that we hear a lot of times when we're out talking to people is that on one hand, it makes perfect sense in this conversation that you would touch the stuff that would allow more things to get deployed. But a lot of times what people are under pressure is, is to deliver features. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to turn around an organization and make it be able to operate well, how do you deal with that pressure from outside of the team that's saying, when am I going to get X feature? When am I going to Y feature? The, the area that I've done, I've literally done this myself in my current thing, trying to lay down uh, a good product roadmap of when features are going to be delivered. And it's, if you can show that you are able to deliver features faster as a result of paying down some of this technical debt, that is how you're going to get buy-in from outside of your engineering organization. Mm -hmm. um, typically, um, engineers will take a shortcut here, a shortcut there because of deadlines. I had to get this accounting thing out the door so we could get paid in the first mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And that is a perfectly reasonable argument because you need to get paid. Mm -hmm. However, because of those shortcuts, now you have that, you've put that duct tape, you've put that chicken wire, the spaghetti code that's in there. You have to eventually be willing to allocate some time and effort to go back as part of fixing problems. The only other alternative answer is to try to, instead of evolve the code into a better state, is to rebuild it from scratch. And that is typically much harder to do on a moving target, because obviously re-architecting an entire accounts payable section of, of a product is very difficult to do in a single release mm -hmm. uh, yeah. model. But if it's, if it's that bad, you may want to consider that. 
there is no absolute right or wrong answers to evolution versus revolution. Mm-hmm. It's you have to balance what's going to work for delivering the most value to your customers, uh, to the users of your app or website or what have you, against making sure you're not shooting yourselves in the foot down the road. I've long said that the nature of architecture is at a conflict with agile development. Agile mm-hmm. development is two weeks sprints, I have limited scope, and I get it done. Architecture is this big, giant arc of how I want one release, two release, three releases down the road to operate effectively. And it's traditionally not heavily feature-driven. It's feature-enabling more than anything else. And so finding the right balance between how do I put things in place, not so much that it takes care of tomorrow, but when I have to change the product tomorrow, it's Mm -hmm. not a earth-shattering level of effort. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't be Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill and having it come down on them and mm-hmm. only making minor value increments. There, there's one thing that you said, though, that I, I wouldn't want to lose sight of it if, if indeed this is what you're saying, which is also choosing the tech debt that delivers business value and connecting that business value to it so that even as you work on not the feature that they most want, but a piece of tech debt that you deliver business value back and are able to point to that so that that has a business benefit. This is not a lifestyle benefit to engineering per se, while that's an, it's a wonderful ancillary benefit, um, but that's, that's not the sole driver of this piece of work that you've taken on or prioritized. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, uh, I would say that's accurate. And I was just thinking that one of the interesting benefits of all the push to the cloud lately has been that you can actually show a financial cost mm. to bad performance, to mm. instability, all of these non-functional things that we've seen over the years, mm-hmm. you can actually go, well, I had to run that job 17 times and it cost us an extra $3,000. Mm-hmm. You can truly itemize out the cost That's right. mm-hmm. of performance or itemize out the cost of fault tolerance that you could never do before. Right, because uh, it was some it, cost, right? You already spent on your infrastructure. You already spent on your and yeah. it was, I don't care. Yep. Make it work, I don't care. Yep. Now you can show, well, by not caring how you solved the problem, it's actually costing us thousands of dollars. And being able to itemize that is an amazing ability to push back on this tech that is killing us. And I can show you mm-hmm. exactly how many thousands of dollars like it's costing. Actual us. dollars. And that's yeah. not even accounting for the emotional morale of your team just banging their heads against this wall. Right. There's a huge cost to that. I mean, the turnover at your company will likely be higher if you're constantly just putting out fires. Your team's working late nights or weekends because something you don't normally account for that because salary is a fixed cost. Mm-hmm. And it's their dedication, their pride. No, it's you're, you're burning people out. There, mm-hmm. there are solutions to this, but being able to itemize out the actual raw cost of compute effort mm-hmm. to do something is, is this weird ancillary value uh, that, that we've never had before. Well, the best engineers want to add value, so enabling them to be able to <laughs> deliver more value mm-hmm. per day will give them greater satisfaction. And it just so happens that also aligns to business outcomes. So, yeah, I mean, my but, experience with engineers, there's a, there's about ten to twenty percent of Engineers that really care about that, like hyper performance or optimization or pure back end stuff. But the rest want to deliver product features. They want to build something neat. They want to deliver something unique. 
Mm. Um, and so making it better and easier for them is in everyone's interest, both uh, the, the engineer as well as the, the product and the customers. I think it's a, as we talk about transformation and turnaround and we look at some of these stories, we there seems as if there's a disconnection between the business and the engineers. And that the business is headed in one direction, but if you go ask the engineers, what are we doing? They, there's that, they seem to be either they don't know or they're maybe not aligned. How do you help senior leadership make sure that they're connected with the engineers and the information is going up and down? The the best example, and I've said this for probably 15 years now, is engineers operate best when they understand why they're building what they're building. Uh, and a lot of companies that I've worked at o- over the years, you get a requirement to do X, mm-hmm. and sometimes even a sliver of how to do X on top of everything else. And, and that's kind of like a, a punch card mentality of, okay, I'm going to throw this task over a fence to engineering, and they're going to get it done, and they're going to bring it over back. If you give them a reason of we need to increase our revenues, which will allow us to grow as a company, understanding the purpose behind fixing, I'm just dialing back to this random accounting example, mm. knowing why you care about the accounting system. An, en- an engineer might not be fully aware of full business accounting systems, et cetera, and they don't necessarily have to be. But if you can give them the reason why, they're going to operate in a manner that's better supportive of the business as a whole. So that answers kind of that angle of it. Uh, the business side, you really have to drive them into understanding what does it take to deliver. Um, some things that can actually help are some of the classic agile rituals of demos. Showing what you did as you do it hmm. gives insight outside of that organization of how many steps did it take to do this thing. Because they'll see feature A, feature B, feature C, feature D, all these things that had to go into getting this thing fixed will give some insight to kind of the level of effort or the complexity that might be needed uh, for them to really see the value delivered by, by the team. And so those two areas that I've worked on in the past to try to make sure that both sides understand kind of what's going on. And, and and why? And I imagine a lot of your role or a lot of your time is spent bridging that gap both directions, explaining the whys and uh, um, explaining the complexity of execution, right? And and you know you're you're in between those two those two worlds. Are there other methods that you're using besides your own personal like uh, you know street fighting, if you will, on this topic, <laughs> um, fighting for uh, for cohesion? Are there other methods that you're using to to bring those two sides of the business together, the the engineering, the execution with the uh, the business stakeholders? Um, we do everything from making sure that there's open communication, that our engineers are free to discuss up the chain. I'm in a rel- relatively small company, mm. so there's easy communication channels from CEO down to junior engineer. Mm. Those communication channels help a lot when you're in a building a product because that feeling of all being part of the team, all pulling on the rope together really makes a lot of things possible, uh, both from a morale perspective as well as a product delivery perspective. Yep, Someone with a pretty broad base of experience, what are some of the types of transformations that are most pressing? Things that you're seeing across the board that people are struggling with and or things that people that are coming that people need to get ready for? 
What I've seen in the past, some some clients at 3Pillar, as well as to a lesser degree currently, is you don't know what your next big opportunity for your particularly small company is going to be. Mm. So you're sitting there waiting on go on four or five different directions you can take the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had mm-hmm. uh, I had a, a client years ago that they might be going into the telematics space. They might be going <laughs> into the driving space. They might be going into the. They had five. It all depends on who is right. Fleet. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. It's fleet. <laughs> like it all depends on who signed the check next. And I get that when you're a startup, you have to be scrappy and be willing to to pivot. Mm. Um, that's a challenge because you can't desi- design a product well when you don't know some fundamental directions you're going in. Like who's going to buy it and what is it designed to do? Yeah. Because okay, I mean, typically <laughs> it's it's what's the most important feature to build. I mean, that's your classic question from from product management 101. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know that, if you can't know that question, mm. that's that's a huge challenge, and mm-hmm. you have to set yourself up for being able to adjust tech quickly. And so you take a different approach to building the thing. You build smaller bites because you wait and wait and wait, and okay, now I have to go. If you have a, if you can pick a path, you can do a lot more elegant solutions because you can build things mm-hmm. over the course of the sprint mm-hmm. where you know they're going to land in the right spot later, and and you can nice, elegant features that are extendable and all these things that you can do if you can focus for an extended period of time. Mm. And that focus is some of the bigger challenges. Uh, X-Mode Social, we are a startup. We only load our sprints to about 50% of capacity. Interesting. We take the other 50% because we know there will be ad hoc requests that come in, mm. and we know that there will be emerging emergent sales requests that will come in. Mm-hmm. And we can't control... If and when those happen. So mm-hmm. rather than plan a full-size sprint and then have to take things off, mm-hmm. we plan to about 50% capacity where we know we're going to hit. You make a commitment you feel you can deliver on. Yep. My, my statement to the team, I've said probably mm-hmm. three dozen times, is I'd rather have somebody under-commit than under-deliver. Yep. It doesn't matter. If you say you're going to get 20 stories done, but in the end you get 10, and I never know which 10 I'm going to get, I can't plan. I can't work with product owners, et cetera, to know what's going to happen. If you tell me you're going to get five done and you definitely get those five done, I can work with that. Reliability is a more important tool than velocity mm-hmm. at the end of the day. There's, so also, even, there's also something really powerful about building your process around the realities of the business, right? That you're right. you're actually saying like, I already know that there's a certain amount of unknowns, and so I'm going to model our process around that. And yeah, we, I mean, if if the unknowns don't bite me the way that they usually do historically, right. then uh, then I can over deliver. But um, that that's a that's a really insightful. Um, if we end up in a sprint where we have extra capacity because we didn't get as many sales requests or ad hoc requests as mm-hmm. we thought, we'll pull forward like research spikes mm-hmm. or interesting things to fix the underlying tech debt mm-hmm. if we have the bandwidth. That's the perfect time to pull them in. Mm-hmm. How do you fight the perception that that is a form of sandbagging? Because that I've, I've run into that before. Mostly because we rarely have the extra time. <laughs> <laughs> the re- proof is in the pudding. We're definitely uh, not sandbagging. <laughs> sales is like a gas. It will fill the volume of the space in which it is given. <laughs> 
Yay, my science degree is paying off. Um, no, but it's you can always provide more assistance to yep. other departments. You can always provide more capabilities. We've took some extra bandwidth and some processes that we were doing manually because they were originally were one-off ad hocs, and then they mm-hmm. became regular ad hocs. Mm-hmm. We've built out little systems to make them a little more automated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're making a, a large push this entire year for enhanced automation across all our capabilities. Everything mm-hmm. from sales operations through engineering. It is not just an in- automation is not just an engineering thing. Mm-hmm. It can be it can improve your your entire company and your product development across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from finance doing being better at doing automation to our build process being a lot more automated in terms of well we had basic automation and it all worked and it was all good. Can we make it better? Hmm. What areas can can we do a little uh, tweak on here, a tweak on there, to make one less manual step involved? Yeah. Uh, any kind of time you have to shift gears or, or change focus, it's it's highly disruptive to product development cycles. Hmm. And so, we we try to do what we can with our extra bandwidth when we have it mm-hmm. to improve that. Space. One, one of the things that I think is so in, as I as I think about this conversation um, and what you're saying. Um, in modeling for the for the inherent chaos, it, it, the number of times that I've been in conversations where it's like, how do I get the chaos to go away? Right? <laughs> like, I just want to beat it down. Like, why are there ad hoc conversations? We should stop those. Or do you start to orient around like ad hoc is part of where we are, and we need to accept it, and we need to model for it. And that, I think there's a really important insight in that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like you can certainly try to minimize the chaos, but you also shouldn't. You need to have a collective awareness about the the context within your operating, and if the con- if that context requires the chaos, model better around it um, so that you can live with it in a way that's uh, productive and. Make sure that you don't you're not burning people out. You know all of those I mean, kinds of things. For, for us, hmm. if if an, a random request comes in once, we accept the fact that that's going to happen. Um, the nature mm-hmm. of our system, we bring in uh, about a billion points of data every day. Mm. Um, so if there's some ad hoc analysis of it, it takes a little time and effort to do. Mm. And if it's and if it only happens once, then we are willing to put in some manual effort to get that answer, and that's fine. We see it come in the second time, see it come in the third time, something similar. Then we start solving for it. Mm. Uh, it's it's kind of a very practical way of doing it. It's maybe not the most mm. effective way, but it's I am only going to solve the problems that are re- repetitive problems. Yep. But with we're, we're, we're a startup. Yeah. We already have enough challenges on, a, on our plate as it is. Uh, yeah. We're not going to create a new framework every time a new request comes in. It's yeah. okay, yeah. we'll do it the hard way once. Maybe we'll do it the hard way twice because it'll be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But by the time you see the third one, you're able to draw the commonalities. Yeah. Oh, if we did a, our, a preemptive analysis this way, when they ask the question later, it'll take a tenth of the time. That kind of we don't have to solve it all the way is the other reality of it. Most problems, if you can get to them to the point where you can solve them quicker, faster, cheaper the next time, that's probably enough of a win. Mm. The the idea that you have to solve every problem fully, and re, and repeatedly and automate like that nth degree and at scale, yeah, you, yeah. that's not real. Yeah. I, I've been a longstanding. I'm I'm a practical applied technologist by nature. Mm. Solve the problems you have to a point where okay, now it's easier. I don't have to have a dedicated data store for a specific solution. But if I can get from instead of querying. A billion records, mm-hmm. I query 20 million records. Mm-hmm. It's still going to take some time to run, but I can give somebody an answer in five minutes versus mm-hmm. 
the job's running. I'll let you know when it finishes. Mm-hmm. I've always mm-hmm. found that you had a business sense and a practicality that I don't see in a lot of engineers. And that a lot of engineers want the um, solution that doesn't require a lot of rework, that scales well, that's easy to deploy. So how do you, how is that, is that something just that came through an evolution as you had more experience, you started to, where did that come from? Because it's not something I see all (laughs) all over the place. The genesis of that for me is twofold. My very first job out of college, I was a website developer for credit unions, of all things. And it was a three-person subcompany. We had a director of website development, me. We had a director of sales and a director of operations. All three people were directors. Yay. Um, (laughs) The operation person didn't speak anything but technical the salesperson didn't understand anything technical, so they might have picked the wrong career, but that's a whole other discussion altogether. I was stuck in the middle. So very early on, I translated from the technical needs to the business and sales needs and back and forth because I had to because otherwise I would have lost my mind <laughs> is what it came down to. Um, and then the next story is uh, when I started at Oracle, um, my very first engagement there, they sent me to weeks of training. Great. And the day after that week's of training, you're going to this client site and you're by yourself. So I was the application developer, the DBA, and the client success manager all rolled into one six weeks into going to work there in the first five weeks of training. I'm sure yeah. we taught you everything you need. Yes, good luck. <laughs> um, but that was, that was like in the deep end of a pool. I yeah. had to find a way to balance what the customer wanted with how to actually build it. Hmm. I was implementing three products at Oracle that had never been implemented before. Um, and so that was scary as all get out as well. But the argument could be made that nobody knows it better than me because nobody knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that worked out really. I mean, that was like a huge deep, deep end of the pool, sink or swim. Fortunately, I swam. Um, and that, I think that's really where it started from is always making sure that what I am doing is in the best interest of myself, that I don't have to go back and rework something, but mm-hmm. also the customer so they don't ask me to go back and rework something. So and laziness. Laziness is the answer <laughs> you were looking for. No, that's not right. <laughs> no, but there's, I mean, it, and building on that too, I mean, it, there's there's another um, subtext to how you talk about um, engineering cultures and systems, which is which is really about resource maxim, maximization. Whether that resource is energy, morale, right, in the form of morale, or engagement of your engineers, or, you know, we think about like things like Pareto principle. Like if I can get, you know, 80% of the value with 20% of the cost, I'm going to do that. Um, it may not be worth the additional 80% of cost to get to the next 10% of value. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's always been a useful, like one of the things that I know that you're exceptional at is, is, is triangulating those conversations because it is about making bets and then, and, and winning, um, Return on that investment. A lot of time, it's the shiny new technical thing. That that's your that's your problem that causes that. Mm. Um, I had a client where they wanted to build a recommendation engine for which credit card customers should go through. And so, okay, great. How many credit cards do you have? Eleven. And of those, <laughs> how many tend to apply to more than one of them apply to the same person? Maybe two or three. You don't need a recommendation engine. You need a wizard. <laughs> You need to ask the customer three questions. A decision tree should be fine for you. Exactly. There's, yeah. there's only so many choose-your-own-adventures going down in that particular... It's a four-page yeah. choose-your-own-adventure book. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that one because I was thinking of the security client who wanted to build a product that was absolutely amazing and astounding. Then every single customer they pitched it to said, well, for that money, I could just hire a bunch of lawyers. So like I could prevent the security incident for a lot of money or I could hire a lawyer for a little money. I think I'd rather just have the lawyer because then I only have to pay them if I use them. I, I work in an engagement and they were required to support disabled people using the system by agreement. This is a government. Fund. Section 508. Yeah. They couldn't make the application 508 compliant. So the mitigation plan was they were agreeing to pay to hire somebody to sit next to the person who needed the help. <laughs> <laughs> Because that was cheaper, and in the, in the, by far, than reworking this. I mean, it was a big data geospatial temporal. I mean, it was this crazy data system, and like, there's no way to make this possible to be used without being without seeing it. There's no way yeah. to make the system be able to read this information to you. It would be just reading out numbers, and that's ridiculous. <laughs> so their solution was, yeah, if ever you need it, we'll pay to hire somebody. To sit in the chair next to them. <laughs> that's, our, that's our Section 508 compliance. <laughs> and it was policy. signed off on because they were absolutely right. There was no way functionally to make that happen. It's a unique solution. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I love Which, the creativity. At the end of the day, think of think of unique solutions. The other problems you have is is the tenant of that is you don't no. always have to solve it by brute force. Mm-hmm. Um, I've built a lot of systems where keep it simple, and if I have to change it in three months, a little bit, so be it. Versus trying to build a framework. That makes every single possibility easy to change. Mm-hmm. But now I have to build ten thousand lines of code for this, and then a database backend system, and all the and all the. If I have to update code every three months, it's not the worst thing because I'm going to be updating code anyway. Oh. Mm-hmm. So if I have to make a little tweak and add a little thing here or add a, an option there, mm-hmm. sometimes a nice simple solution is far better interest than a, a robust complete solution. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know many. Engineers might be rolling their eyes at me at that, but that, that's that's <laughs> the way it is. So we have two questions we like to ask every guest. What's the one thing you look for on a team that tells you if it's healthy or in trouble? Am I supposed to say the three-pillar logo at this point? Is that what I'm looking for? Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Your requirement to shamelessly plug us has long since ended. <laughs> this is true. This is true. I tried convincing that I was just on limited PTO. That's, that's <laughs> Basically, um, lack of communication. You know, like if the single, if I had to look for the single point, is that the engineers aren't talking to the product owner, and whether that's directly or indirectly, that that communic and by, and vice versa. If that communication channel isn't happening, it's the the product project whatever it is is going to implode at the end of the day. Um, you have to be all working towards the same higher level goals. Mm-hmm. And it can't be all tech and it can't be all product. It has to be a good marriage of both. And if that communication channel is not there, that's not happening. What piece of technology, analog software or hardware can you not live without? That's a good one. I mean, the easy answer is my phone. And that, that's that thing that okay, I, think I feel nobody like we need to change would... this question, Scott, because it's too easy. <laughs> my phone. Everyone's answer is their phone. Yeah. The <laughs> internet. <laughs> <laughs> Say AWS, please. It's, it's going to end up being AWS. Uh, I think. Uh, I guessed it. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's the reality situation is that I think it has changed the game both for enterprises and startups. That you can take a small bite or a big bite as you need it, um, and it's not just AWS. It's really all 
major cloud providers. I'm an, I'm an AWS fanboy. I'm an AWS certified architect. Oh, we know. Re- recertified, so ha-ha. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. I let the other one expire. That was on me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it's the ability to be able to do things in a, in a whole new way of thinking. And most of the time, if you design for, quote-unquote, the cloud, you are ended up actually taking really good software development practices in, in, into play. You're, you're accounting for failing, retrying, the stuff that's going to happen in the cloud. Kurt Vogel, I think is the CTO of AWS, mm-hmm. he's infamous for saying everything fails on AWS all the time. He promotes that on stage <laughs> on every speech he does. Because in the cloud, you now have the ability to deal with it by, mm-hmm. by having backup resources, by having yeah. failover. It doesn't hurt that that means that you have to pay for two servers instead of one on AWS. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it also means that fault tolerance is your fault not AWS is if something fails. Because mm-hmm. they warned you right on stage, the stuff fails. <laughs> but, but the economics of resiliency, which is really what we're talking mm-hmm. about, become, I mean, they, they completely changes the economics of actual resiliency and, um, in, your, in your systems and your product and ultimately your business. Right, which, and especially with the elasticity at play. In the, in, back in the day, <laughs> you would have to have a full-sized offsite. I mean, I ran e-commerce for Timberland, Polo, Kohan, some pretty significant brands. Our offsite had to be as large as our primary site. Because mm-hmm. if our primary site failed, we'd have to move all the traffic to the offsite. It had to be ready all the time. And it was a giant rack of hardware that was idle 99% of the time. In cloud modeling, you can actually have it being down at 1% of the size you need. I think they call it a pilot light environment. And as soon as traffic hits it, it expands itself to being as big as it needs. So you don't have to pay that full cost. Well, you get 99.9% of the benefits of having that. Yeah, you'll have incredibly slow processing for that first 10 minutes where everything's coming up, but you're not going to lose anything. And that's what matters. Customers will leave if it's if the site's down. And that ignores that. If it's slow, that. it buys you enough time where the rest of the systems can kind of come up and running and be and, and be rolling. And we're not even talking about the costs of deploying a new card to data center one and then having to drive over to data center two, install the same card. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I have literally huh. emptied out water from server racks in a server that's room that's flooded before. <laughs> oh, <bye. laughs> so not ever having to do that again is a beautiful thing. These are stories that we will tell our children. <laughs> you used to have server rooms that you could walk into. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Dan. This has My been uh, this thank has been you. fantastic and insightful. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit threepillarglobal.com. <laughs>